I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Raj Vedja of Restaurant Danielle joins us today to talk a little bit about a day in the life of a four-star sommelier. Great to be here, Livy. Thanks. Hey, Raj. How you been, man? Very well, very well. I uh, have electricity. I'm getting thirsty, and life's good. How many hours have you had electricity at this point? Uh, since four in the morning, so I've, I've got a good, good you know, uh, suburban restaurant shift in. <laughs> Did you see an impact on the Upper East Side in terms of Restaurant Danielle uh, with the power outage downtown? Uh, we did have some folks who uh, who don't make it up too often who uh, decamped to uh, hotels up here and the such who popped into the bar, but it, it wasn't a huge impact. In fact, we, uh, naturally, we were quiet in the middle of the week. We lost a lot of uh, reservations, people who were coming in from out of town and the such. Right. But, uh, people yeah. had other thoughts on their mind. Indeed, and it was hard to get food to serve them uh, as well, of course. But back to normal now. What is a normal day at Restaurant Danielle for you? Well, uh I have sort of two jobs, the way I look at it, at least, <laughs> depending on uh, what's going on at the restaurant at that moment. But essentially, I think of my day as being split into uh, one I spend in my office uh, dealing with purchasing, uh, sourcing wine, um, dealing with guests uh, in so far as figuring out what they want to drink if they're coming in for a big party, handling private dining decisions when it comes to wine. Uh, talking to and uh, ordering from distributors and uh, keeping my pulse on the market and making sure that I know what wines are out there, what wines cost, and uh, what I can sell them for. So that's really kind of the difference between like the chef sommelier, the head guy, the administrative side, and and the floor sommelier. Yes, absolutely. Uh, however, be certain that I'm also, my other job is the floor sommelier. So around four o'clock, I start uh, losing interest in Excel spreadsheets and my mind starts to wander. I usually have to take a, a couple of minutes of YouTube breaks before I get yeah. it. What's a preferred video? Well, you know, I, I go back and forth. I, I, I always look for uh, new entertaining stuff. I like, uh, I'm on this tip of uh, all these new uh, pseudo, I guess they're comedian musicians uh, making spoofs of either, you know, rap music or like, hair metal and things like that, but with very cutesy things. I, I like it. I like literal video. That's a good one. Oh, is that a good one? Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of them. They, they basically 
change the words of songs you would recognize to describe exactly what's happening in the music video. But oh to, yeah, but to the tune of the the songs, to, a, to, total eclipse of the heart. That's the best one. That's a pretty clever uh, <laughs> clever idea, <laughs> and it has a wine reference in it actually. Because there's this one scene where a bunch of people in like what I guess are fencing uniforms or somewhere between a fencing and a ballerina uniform are uh, clinking glasses, and the line goes, "Drinking wine, douchebags." That's really funny. Oh yeah, uh, it's full on. Good show. Yeah, well, that's anyway, right. that's, that was a good. It was a great video for that. Uh, But then, you know, family meal. And uh, uh, typically my my one moment there is, uh, which signifies the difference rather than YouTube, is that I change from, you know, my street shoes into my dress shoes and put a tie on. sandals into... Well, indeed. Yeah. (laughs) Sandals in the warmer runs. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) exactly. So, uh, you know, it's a pretty big place. Uh, How do you get around the floor? I mean, you you guys divide it up or... Yeah, absolutely. Um, You're pretty familiar with the restaurants. You know that we, we split the dining room, the main dining room, into six service stations. And so each sommelier is responsible for two of them. Uh, some stations have less tables or less total potential for covers and the such. And so we, we even it out by distributing the lounge and, uh, you know, uh, other responsibilities. But in the past, I think, uh, way way back in Jean-Luc Ledoux's day, when he was the first sommelier at, at this location and uh, and maybe ever <laughs> in Daniel's life. Uh, no, that's not true. No, no. There was uh, the... The Austrian guy was the first one. Right, right, right. Yeah, I forgot about him. Well, Alexander. Well, uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, Jean-Luc definitely uh, holds the title as the guy. That, uh, Made the program, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And uh, he pretty much worked the whole room by himself is the story. Although I'm sure a lot of the waiters did a lot of that work. Then slowly he started getting people who worked for him uh, as time went on. Uh, it, I know that some restaurants have stations that are really clear cut and the sommelier is devoted to that station. I don't really believe in that kind of service because I think that we have dynamic people that work there. Uh, clearly, I'm talking about the guys who work with me, not me myself. But, uh, you know, I've got a guy who works there who's like very, very charming and he's got a French accent. He's uh, very suave. He can handle some customers that could be a little bit difficult that need a little bit more um, buttering up, if you will. This I've is got, Edvard Edward Bourgeois. Edward Bourgeois, exactly. He's a guy. Yeah, he's incredible. Uh, one of my greatest assets. Uh, he's fantastic. Very lucky to work it's with It's good him. to have a Frenchman in the book. In yeah, the, uh, for sure. In the arsenal. Well, I mean, uh, for many reasons, because it makes it more convincing as being a French restaurant, but also right. because we have a lot of guests who come from Europe who don't speak English, who can't communicate uh, easily. So especially when it, it comes to talking about wine, that could be a dangerous conversation if you can't communicate about pricing or the style of wine that they actually want, it's much more helpful to have uh, that language barrier knocked down. And I, I don't really speak French. That makes a lot um, of sense. And, and, but uh, that's just one example. I, all of the guys there have sort of a speciality. And we can kind of case tables that way. Uh, and it's not just us, the major d's, the captains can kind of look at a table and come over to me and be like, you know, this table's in Edward's section, but like you really need to go over there and just beat them up for something, uh, you know, like get get the information out of them that they won't be able to communicate to Edward because they're so New Jersey Shore or something like that. Uh, it, it's uh, everyone has their speciality, their type of customer that they could deal with. So we do a lot of crossover in the stations. Is that kind of a different experience than that when you worked at Crew and it was a bit of a smaller room? Uh, definitely a smaller room and also. Um, a, a very uniform clientele kind of at crew. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, the people who came there were not as diverse, mostly probably because it's not as big a restaurant, but also because it wasn't as old a restaurant. I mean, uh, Danielle's been around a long time and has a lot of different camps of people that come there. 
Uh, and also, I don't think Crew had such a draw for tourists. Uh, it wasn't as famous a restaurant. It didn't have as much cachet. Uh, that was really kind of a New York phenomenon. And, you know, I know how, all of us know how to deal with New Yorkers. It's everybody else that, uh, that we have to figure it out. Do you think that's one of Daniel's strengths as a restaurateur is that he has managed to really uh, bring in multiple streams of regulars or multiple streams of business? Uh, I think it speaks a lot to his staying power uh, and and his uh, you know his finesse, his uh, personality, his warmth. Uh, a lot of he appeals to a lot of people uh, and for a lot of different reasons, and they all feel comfortable in the same place together, even though they're so different, because he's the you know the chord that. That strikes true. Uh, yeah, it definitely speaks to his staying power, his uh, intelligence uh, as a businessman, I'd say, as well. Uh, in the end, it's, uh, it's a question of how long you've been around. The longer you've been around, the more established you get tend to be. I have friends in New York uh, from all different walks of life because I've been here for 15 years. And I think, you know, if I'd been here for five years, I probably would only have restaurant friends or wine friends. Right, right, absolutely. So, I mean, what's an average day? What do you open up there at the old restaurant, down Danielle's pretty big list, pretty big seller. Uh, what's the normal What's the normal bottle at a table? Well, we we have again, as you would imagine, because of our uh, varied clientele, uh, very different price points that are really, really interesting. And uh, you know, frankly, uh, it's quite high compared. To, our average bottle is quite high compared to a lot of other restaurants. So, a lot of what we're opening is uh, Burgundy. Uh, split a little bit between very young oh uh, sevens, oh eights, oh nines. And um, speaking of red specifically, and some stuff that's like more middle-aged, you know, stuff in the 90s, things that are still offer, uh, present pretty good value. Uh, it's not unusual for us to be opening older, more fancy wines. Happens quite a bit. But uh, the bulk of uh, people are, are interested in drinking Burgundy. That wasn't the case when I started working there, but that's, that's become a big focus of the list. And I think that people are talking about it. The word has gotten out that there's wine there to be drunk. So, Do you think that Burgundy has become kind of the blue chip amongst the, the, what, what you might think of as high-end fine dining? Absolutely. Uh, I think that there's been a shift away from uh, big California wines and, uh, and young Bordeaux. Um, and I, I think that Bordeaux is still a huge part of our sale. I, I know Bordeaux is a huge part of our sales. But it, it, I, I draw the distinction. It's like we sell the, uh, more or less the same amount of Bordeaux as Burgundy in dollars, but we sell a lot more liters of Burgundy. I see, I see. Because what we're selling in Bordeaux tends to be a higher ticket. Uh, and I think that the reason for that is because uh, all of Bordeaux has gotten so expensive that to resell it, I have to make a, a profit on every bottle I buy. And uh, the market has become quite equalized. Everyone knows what wine costs now. So people are less inclined to pay more for uh, lower bracket Bordeaux, whereas the, the big time stuff is always commanded high prices. So people just... There's always someone in to town who's going to hit it. Exactly. So, I mean, do you get a chance to get over there a little bit uh, in Burgundy or the Bordeaux region? Absolutely. Uh, I have actually uh, only been to Bordeaux once, but I, uh, I didn't taste any wine. Uh, I went to go check out the surf. I, I went on a bad day, but there, there wasn't. It's down is, in Biarritz. Is it, is it warm enough to surf there? Uh, it's cold, cool water. You have to wear a wetsuit, but uh, they say it's very good. I went on a bad time. I haven't actually surfed it, but someday and down in Biarritz. Um, Bordeaux is definitely on the list, uh, but actually, Bordeaux is less important for me to visit. In order to taste, although I will learn a lot, I know, as I always do every time I go to a wine region. The reason for that being that I can only take so much time away from the restaurant. I try to go to regions where it's impossible for me to taste the wines that I'll actually be dealing with before I 
uh, have to buy them and then sell them. That makes a lot of sense. In Bordeaux, I can always taste the wine before I have to buy it because mm -hmm. the there's so many so much lag time uh, in barrel and in bottle before the wine is released. Uh, and there's huge trade tastings that are available to me. I can, uh, you know, once or twice a year here in New York, I can taste like 2,000 Bordeaux, red Bordeaux's uh, prior to their release, a year before. Um, that doesn't really happen with Burgundy, uh, partially because production is so much smaller and also because the expense, I guess, to the, the producers to is the too high. a smaller scale producer. Yeah, exactly. Because in Bordeaux, you're dealing with a lot of bigger Right. Bigger People stuff. think of Burgundy as very expensive, and they're correct. It is expensive, but it's uh, it's more precious in, in a sense, and so people are less likely to pop the corks for me to taste them. However, uh, I really do need to know what they taste like right. uh, before I sell them, and I think that's very important. I mean, terroir comes through, and some years is this one's better and some years indeed, that one's better. Indeed, and, and uh, it's a marginal climate. Bordeaux is too. You know, uh, This is not uh, uh, the tropics. You don't get, or California for that matter, where you get As very consistent. As you found consistent. out when you tried to surf it. You're like, <laughs> let me find out. <laughs> well, it's cold in California too. Right. Uh, surfing, that is. <laughs> yeah, well, especially in the Bay Area. So. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so I find myself going to Burgundy um, uh, at least once a year now. And this is something that's been afforded to me after working, starting to work at Danielle. So every year you get a chance to. Uh, I, I've, I've made it a, uh, a consistent thing because it's such a big part of what we sell and because it's so important for me to taste before I, uh, I buy and then I sell the wine. Um, and you work with uh, Daniel Jonas, who's who likes to get over there as well. And yeah, da da Daniel like uh, spends I think a couple of months in Brooklyn and visits New York for like approximately one month. The rest of his time, I'm pretty sure, is spent in Burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he he has a great. I was about to say the the reason I've been afforded that is the position that I have in this restaurant, where you know there is some appeal to having me come and taste the wines. The uh, purveyor, or rather, the producers are willing to open up their doors, but also because Daniel is such a, a force when it comes to the Burgundy market here in America, and also just the message and, and the spirit of the place. And uh, he took me to Burgundy for the first time. Oh, the first couple true? of times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who'd you see on that trip? Oh, man, it was a it was a rock star trip, I got to say. It was pretty good. Uh, I, I basically made a list of like all of the great producers and handed it to him. He was like, oh, this is pretty ambitious. I don't know if we'll get to see all of these people, but uh, by the end of it, I was like, hmm, well, we're missing like one. <laughs> yeah, nine out of ten ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, it, it was more like, uh, you know, 15 out of 60 or something like nice. that in just a few days. But, I mean, he took me to Koch, uh, really? Gris. He took me to the Domaine de la Romani Conti, uh, Rousseau, Rumier, uh, of course, Rouleau, Lafon. We just saw such great producers and tasted such amazing wines. It, it was, it was mind-blowing for me. Re really a treat. What, I mean... Uh, so, I mean, that all sounds great, but specifically, I mean, what is the difference between tasting there for someone who may never have done it and tasting here? I mean, what outside of the fact that well, the, you're with the uh, uh, Of course, you're with the grower, so that, in, that adds so much to an experience of coming to contact with the wines, because these are wines that are very soulful. They're not factory produced. What is distinctive about them is their terroir, which has to do with the soil, obviously, the specific vineyard, but it has to do with the person, too, I think. And you interact with these people who can tell you why the wines taste different, why this wine has this component to it or this characteristic. Uh, and it's really, really eye-opening how much winemaking has a part to play in, in Burgundy. Uh, I think a lot of people have this idea that... Um, uh, the traditional Burgundian wine grower with his, you know, dirty hands, which is, tr that part's true, uh, you know, overall gets off the tractor, throws the grapes in the vat, uh, puts it in a barrel and 
you know, shakes his hand, throws a little sulfur on it, puts it in a bottle, and that's all there is to it. But that is so not the case. The things you learn about pruning and how important that is, um, things you learn about phenology, you know, the, the ripeness of the grapes and, and how to consider that, how that translates, when to pick, uh, when not to pick, uh, different kinds of maladies of the vine, rot, difference between rot and gray rot, oidium, mil different mildews. It, it's mind-boggling how much work these guys have to do to figure out uh, how to make the best wine. And then it's amazing how they're consistently the great producers, the real, really, really great producers, figure it out every year with yeah. a new set of challenges. With a new set, with a totally different palette. Yeah. So it's more like the kind of things that help you make informed buying choices and help you understand the area better. But it's not so much the kind of info that you might uh, talk to a table about necessarily. Exactly what it what it teaches me about is um, where the spirit of the wines. Uh, is and what what it means and from there i can extrapolate and and kind of build a picture for a customer having to do with some things that they care about and understand you know uh people come into the restaurant for instance and say uh, I, I had a, a table last night you know like we came to a dinner here years ago where it was all wines from hansel we thought they were really great then last year we were in paris and we talked to the sommelier who who knew hansel wines and asked for something French, and he brought us to Chevalier Montrachet. And, you know, in some ways, that uh, sounds kind of silly, but it isn't silly. It, like, makes a lot of sense. Now I understand what they like, because they love that Chevalier Montrachet as well. Uh, it was very easy for me to show them something new, something different uh, within Burgundy or from a different region in France, from a different producer in California, because I, I understood the connection between the spirit of the wines and what they were looking for. Um, it's not always a question of, you know, do you like fruity or dry? Do you like sweet? Do you like oak? Do you like lots of malolactic? Sometimes uh, it doesn't translate that easily, you know? There's uh, producers you can think of. I, I love the idea that uh, young sommeliers have this no oak idea. They, they want wines, especially Chardonnay from California that has no oak. They're like, oh, it's just like Chablis. It's so racy and so mineral. But it isn't like Chablis, really. It's totally different. Um, it's not a question always of production. It's a question of uh, where the wines sit in terms of their energy and, and the, the message that they have, you know? Um, uh, there's a lot of oaky wines that I like. Uh, Moranger is very good. Usually it goes in a barrel. Usually I found that like the one the one word answer, whether it's yay or nay, is, tends to be more unhelpful than helpful. Like yes, in exactly. terms of understanding wines. Yeah, absolutely. My, my questions usually lead to what type of wines do you usually like? Uh, give me some ideas of them. Once I catch something familiar, then I can ask them why they like it, and then I can find something that matches. And what I pick up from, from visiting the region is, first of all, that spirit of the wines, but also um, the, I learn more about the specific things that contribute to that, where not every producer can can tell me that because they maybe they just have always done something a certain way. But then when you start catching those similarities between different producers and maybe producers in Burgundy and in California, the uh, types of presses that they use or different kinds of sulfur treatments, um, any kind of adjustments, or, or and be they in the vineyard or in the winery, uh, it gives me a bigger picture and a better idea of wine in general, I think. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm looking to learn more about wine in general. So those specific uh, things teach me a lot about that. So do you think in a way that you, you do a lot of homework so that uh, your customer doesn't have to or so that the conversation can be just more fluid? 
Uh, admittedly, at least half of it is personal edification because I, I, it's something yeah. I want to know more. Well, you about. have a curious mind. Yeah, if, uh, well, especially when it comes to some some things, you know, and wine is one of them. Uh, and then the rest of it is exactly because I, the more I know about it, the easier it can be for me because I'm a good communicator and because I can understand most of my customers. Um, the easier it is for me to get them something that they want because at the end of the day, I'm in a trade. I'm uh, I'm in charge of an experience. What I sell is not just liquid, but a, a whole experience. And it's, I want my customers to be happy because then they're going to come back. They're going to be better customers. They're going to, you know, enjoy the, my pro, the product that I'm putting on the table uh, and that others like me are putting on the table. And that's, that's good for uh, the business that I work for. And it's good for the business in general. You're interesting to me for several reasons, but one of them is that you uh, work in uh, every day in a very, refined and high-end restaurant at a time when uh, those are maybe starting to disappear or have disappeared in a classic idiom. And at the same time, uh, you're someone who loves to go out to more casual places in your own neighborhood because uh, you don't uh, live uptown. You live downtown and, and you like casual places uh, that are you know, perhaps drawing more crowds these days just in terms of uh, customers. Um, what do you think that's important and what what does the luxury experience really bring that's beneficial to the customer in a time when I feel like it does have to justify itself and its own existence? Yeah, I mean, the word dinosaur has been thrown around a few times, and I don't think it's unreasonable. Uh, it's just that some, uh, in this case, some of these restaurants aren't dinosaurs because they do offer something very special. Um, you are pretty familiar with my career. I've uh, never really worked in a very, very casual environment successfully. Here and there, I've done things, uh, but... Quickly, I came to realize I actually am more comfortable in the very refined and fancy environment. And most of that is, has to do with uh, the fact that it's what I've learned and what I've done all, most of my career. Um, I do think there is something special that is offered, however. And, uh, you know, there's more than one thing, but uh, the overall experience of something truly opulent that you will never do for yourself at home uh, and couldn't necessarily do for yourself at home is obviously a big part of that appeal to get a great chef who really knows uh, what he's doing in the kitchen has access to product that you simply do not have access to and can translate that in a way that's soulful is uh, is huge and I, I love that uh, admittedly I don't go to fancy restaurants very often because I've worked in them so long it, it almost feels like I'm, I'm going to work when I go to a, you know a very very um, pristine environment like that but uh, I do appreciate the 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 show, and I, I liken it a lot to to Broadway shows. You know, I, th I think that's totally the case, except that it's all improv. It's much more fast paced, and uh, unlike Broadway shows, not counting Spider Man, people actually might die. Uh, well, it, it what I mean by that is that it's it's real life. It's dangerous. It's exciting, um, and it's constantly changing. Uh, everything we do is improv. You know, you have your lines set in stone. Uh, you know, oh, you like. Enzel Chardonnay, try Chevalier Monarchet. But you never know who's going to walk through the door, what they're going to be like, what they're going to want, the kind of experience they're expecting, the kind of experience that it might be best for them that you have to figure out and deliver. Uh, and it's exciting. It, it's a, a fun environment. I think that's true for any dining experience. But when you add in all of the, the tricks of the trade of the fancy restaurants, you know, the tableside carvings and the, the fancy silverware, the beautiful glasses and the tableside decanting, then I think it's, it's just a different kind of uh, musical. And uh, I, I like it. I like seeing that uh, pulled off well. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. That having been said, I also recognize that 
along with um, the fancy restaurants come the high price tags because everything's expensive. I mean, at Danielle, the staff, you know, between the kitchen porters, the butchers, the bakers, the uh, line cooks, the prep cooks, the pastry chefs, the maitre d's, the uh, waiters galore, and the bartenders and the sommeliers, we are pretty much one-to-one. Uh, you know, on on a good night. Uh, once we hit that, like one uh, one to 1.2 customers to a, a, a member of the staff, then we're doing pretty well. Uh, but uh, it takes a lot. And so it's expensive, um, which isn't to say that it isn't value-oriented, but it, it's more money than other things. And along with that comes the desire to spend money and to have that experience of opulence, which I think is not just exclusively an American thing, but it's it's pretty robust here still, despite the move towards more casual dining. I think people like to go out and, and spend money. And it feels like the right atmosphere to do so, uh, I think, a restaurant like Danielle or Per Se or Maria, places like this. And when that is the case, then typically people are going to drink wines that are of a higher price bracket. And people come to Danielle to spend money. And I, I love that because um, I, I love the access to the wines that fit in that bracket. I get to taste things uh, very, very often, pretty much every day that I can never afford. <laughs> I drink about beyond my means all the time, basically. And uh, that's another reason that I really like that atmosphere because, you know, my favorite restaurant in, this, uh, in New York, I would say, is Franny's. Uh, it has as much to do with the food as it does with the atmosphere. The food is so pristine. It's so acid-driven. It really fits the kinds of wines I like to drink. Um, and I drink great wine there. It's not difficult to do. However, it's not the kind of place you would go and have on a wine list, a great white burgundy or, you know, a a fancy Chambertin or something like that. But those are kind of nice too. And so I like the exposure of both. If there is a textbook of fine dining where we seem to understand what the tricks of the trade are and what that means, what it implies when someone says luxury experience, um, does it make it harder today to differentiate one from another? Like beyond the name on the door, is it harder to actually have a custom experience in a time when it's it, it's actually pretty understood uh, that there is a, 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 a like a game plan? I don't think so because there has to be a game plan in order to to kind of push the experience in the right direction. If it's really like a free for all, uh, then just like in improv on stage. It'll be kind of a shit show, yeah. you know? Like, if the busboy doesn't know that the bread comes after the water, then there's going to be a lot of thirsty people in the dining room. Uh, and if if there isn't a proper way of serving the food, then, you know, chocolate isn't good before turbot right, right, right. <laughs> or whatever. I mean, the, yeah. that's an extreme of it. But but what I the alternative to that is the kind of restaurant where you can eat that kind of quality food, which exists here in New York, without the tablecloth or necessarily the back on the chair or you know, silverware of any kind, maybe you only have chopsticks as your option. Uh, and that's, that's great because the guest gets to build their own experience, but that's not, that's a very interactive show, but it's not much of a show. Those restaurants don't have the kind of service. And, uh, when I, when I say the kind of service, I'm referring to the, the type of show, the type of, uh, you know, experience that's being put out there that, you know, restaurants like Danielle or even, you know, uh, not quite as fancy restaurants, uh, do, but, I think there's room for both experiences. Uh, you have to have a game plan going in, but you know, even in those casual restaurants, you definitely have a game plan going into the show. It's just the, your, the expectations are pared down, so the, uh, that which is offered is pared down as well. Circling back to the, to the wine a little bit, um, outside of what's popular, uh, are there other areas that you're su- super drawn to 
uh, these in your own drinking or in what's going on at the restaurant? Well, um, definitely. I, I am a huge lover of wines of the Loire Valley, of Germany specifically. Uh, one of my most recent uh, sort of loves has been uh, some of the wines of the Jura. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, I've always kind of been around wines of the Jura and uh, tasted all the fancy, well-known names, lots of uh, Van Jean and the such. Because um, it's not that far from Burgundy. It's not far from Burgundy in, in physically or in spirit. As a matter of fact, uh, I went to the Jura this year for the first time. How was that? I had some great experiences. It was really fantastic. And I, I listened to your first podcast on the way. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, you know, I, I, we provide yeah, an international I, service. I, I, exactly. I got Aldo telling me uh, the right way to serve people while I was driving in a Volkswagen <laughs> across the French highway. It was pretty cool. Uh, but um, it, it was a great experience. I, I have a, a very dear friend, uh, Camille Riviere. Who's, who, she's who, awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. You've interviewed her uh, on the podcast before. Very, very cool lady. She lives uh, part time most of the time in Paris, and she's pretty well connected in the Jura. She knows the people there, and she has good connections. So I said, you know, I'm going to be in Burgundy. I have a real interest uh, to check this out because I've tasted a bunch of great wines recently that are different than what I've been tasting most of my career. Uh, more in the style of the wines that I like, which is to say uh, less, more reductive, less oxidative, uh, really clean palates, and very expressive of terroir. Um, and are, are we talking more about reds than that? Uh, white and red, in fact, actually. Okay. Right. White and red. Um, specifically, the, the ones that were particularly eye-opening to me were, to, she imports uh, this uh, wine, uh, Stefan Tiso, into New York. Uh-huh. And, I, and okay. I remember tasting some of these Chardonnays. I, I tasted a bunch of his Sauvignon before, which uh, not every wine that he makes is in a reductive style, but there are some. Uh, and I was just blown away. I spoke about uh, Jean-Francois Coche earlier. I, I smelled the wine. And I was like, wow, it's like that, that Coche reduction, you know, uh, and it's all, it's not sulfur. It's, it's not because of a large quantity of sulfur. Uh, I found it really appealing. And uh, I think the wines are gorgeous, really, really sexy and, and expressive and energetic and they're, they're exciting especially because you know kosh is really expensive Tiso right is yeah, really not a little bit more and also affordable and, and Tiso is a much bigger producer so there's actually wine like i can buy it and drink it in large quantities um so i said would you mind setting up a day that i can with you visit some producers and she said yes and she did me uh, i mean it was really spectacular she took me to uh Auvernois, and Huyang, which was <laughs> a heck of an experience. And this this is the kind of thing you only get to do when you're there, right? So we we go up to uh, to taste it uh, with Huyang, and as luck would have it, Pierre Auvernois is there. This, uh, those people who are listening who don't know these wines, uh, you're in the same boat as me, because like it's very hard to know these wines. Uh, there's tiny amounts produced, not much of it is brought into the states. Pretty much, you can drink the wines in Paris, I think, fairly easily, but in some places in Burgundy. But other than that, it's like impossible to come by. I've tasted the the wines only a few times in France, and every time I tried one, I was blown away. I really loved it. Uh, And then I had the wines here in the States, and very variable experiences from wines that were uh, like, you know, petri dishes of bacterial contamination, which is like the exact opposite styles of wines that I like, to oxidized wines, to wines that were like, really oddly reduced and not expressive in any way, like almost reduced uh, during the winemaking process, the kind of thing that you can't blow off by decanting. So, But I, I recognize quality, for sure. Wines I'd had in France were beautiful. So I wanted to check it out. And, um, of course, there's not much English speaking going on there, so Kemi was very helpful in, uh, in translating, and, uh, and we sat at a dinner table probably uh, had last been dusted around 1984. And uh, every once in a while, the phone would ring, and it was like the loudest thing you'd ever heard in your life. The, the extent of technology to be found in the house was uh, mason jars with 
uh, grape samples. The uh, interesting thing this winery does is they clip off um, a, a section of the flowering uh, grapes, the pre-grape grapes, just when flowering begins, and preserves it to uh, with the date. Uh, to indicate how there have been changes over the years and give you an indicator of the vintage. I really didn't know that. Yeah, I, I don't really know how that translates to what they do in the winery or if they, how they use that. Um, uh, Monsieur Auvernois was the one speaking, and to be honest with you, I understood like four words he said. Uh, between his accent, uh, he spoke very slowly, but still I couldn't follow him. Huillon was a little easier, but you know my French isn't that good. So if you're not specifically talking about wine terms that I'm familiar with, I'm pretty lost. Uh but they do a lot of interesting things there. But basically, like, uh, you have mason jars, one fax machine that's easily older than my dad, and that very loud telephone. And that was the, the bulk of it. Uh, very, very cool. And it's really like the guy's house, too. <laughs> you know, there, there's, like, crumbs all over the place. He makes really good bread. Very interesting stuff. Oh, he's a baker? He, he makes a very special bread with yeast from the winery. And it, I did it, not know that. The good thing about uh, being there with uh, two pretty French girls who were chatting him up, the old man was having a good old time. We got to taste a lot of the bread. We got to taste some cool wines too, but, you know, a lot of bread. Uh, anyway, so my, you know, like we said, you learn so much by being in a place. Uh, we're sitting there and we're tasting through the, uh, the whites, which I think are fantastic. I'm really more a fan of his reds, but, but they were fantastic. They were energetic. They were exciting. Uh, all of them young at this point. And then he, uh, Huyan brings to the bo- uh, table a bottle uh, of 2011 uh, red and pours us all a taste. Uh, really interesting. Not a lot of depth for me at this point. I'm like, that's it, but it's very, very good. Like, this is, this is why, I, this is the kind of wine I tasted in France. Like, the ones we've tasted in the States not, weren't like this. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's because they don't travel well. He's one of the producers that, uh, for many, many years, has uh, been sans souffle. He uses no sulfur in the winery, uh, and I, I, which I think is an interesting thing if you know what you're doing. And this guy clearly knows what he's doing. He told me that he got turned on to the, uh, this kind of winemaking in the late 60s by uh, Marcel Lapierre. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's why you're so good at it. You've been at it for a long time, and you got the idea from someone who knew what they were doing. Um, there's a lot of uh, unsulfured wine out there that I think... Uh, borderlines on terrible but you know if you can do it and produce a wine that's interesting then then that's why you should be doing it uh so then we taste the wine we spit it out everything's fantastic Huyon disappears mr Ovenois is going on and on i'm pretty sure he's just flirting with the the, the young parisian girl that kemi brought with us which i'm sure is working to our advantage and i'm, I'm correct about that it turns out uh, Huyon comes back with a uh, like I, I, I want to say that there was actually like a cow on the side of this milk jug, but I think that I might be making that up. Uh, it was definitely very kitschy. There was some orange and, the, you know, like the kind of thing you'd find in a suburban household in like the 70s uh, full of cream or something. And it's full of red wine, too. He pours it around to us. I'm like, wait, but 11 is probably the most recent wine, so I wonder what this is. I ask, uh, we, we taste it, it's like stunning. It's already, now, now like I'm getting jazzed, I'm getting excited, and you know, my heart starts something. I'm like, what is this? This is wild. Um, so I ask him, I'm like, well, ask him to tell us what this is. He goes, oh, uh, it's 2011 Pulsar. I'm like, well, what was the other one? He says, oh, that's also 2011 Pulsar. That was a different food, a different barrel. Uh, that's already been bottled, this hasn't been bottled. I was like, oh, okay, uh, do you sell them in different markets? Does it have a difference on the label? He goes, no, not really. And then he turns to Overnoy. He's like, yeah, maybe we should put like a little sign on the on the label somewhere that says, you know, this is a different wine. And Overnoy sh- shrugs his shoulders and goes, 
well, maybe, you know, <laughs> but they, they glaze over it and move on. The rest of the tasting is fantastic. We got to taste some older wines, but the whole time I'm sitting there scratching my head and I'm like, this is why the wine tastes different every time I taste it because they're actually different wines. Um, blew my mind, uh, like how rustic, first of all, that these guys can be, but also that that's the reality of small production. It's like sometimes, you know, things aren't what you would expect. You, it, everything that has a label on it isn't necessarily the same. Um, and I, I thought that was kind of cool, uh, a cool piece of information, because now I feel like I can feel comfortable opening a bottle of Orvinois, having it not deliver, and not having to write off the importer or the retailer who sold it to me, or or any of those steps in between, because it, it it's something different. Which the might be different. super easy to do on this side of the Atlantic if you totally. haven't visited. Yeah, my my, my limited knowledge of the wines was that there's no sulfur, so they're in danger of all of these other things happening. And if they're not handled perfectly, something's going to go wrong. So something went wrong, so they weren't handled perfectly. So you're you're apt to blame the supply chain yeah, yeah, when absolutely. it really could be. Uh, well, also, as a buyer, I get into the habit of just blaming distributors and importers. Right. You know, it's always their fault. they're charging you money. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because they're ripping me off, man. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, as you visit and as you see the reality, do you are you just constantly reminded that it's a bigger world than what we originally thought? Constantly. We, and, and, and moreover, I'm constantly reminded of how little I know. Um, I'm very good at my job, I think. And I, I, I'm, uh, I say that as humbly as I can. But what I'm good at is translating wine as I understand it to the guests and figuring out what they're going to enjoy and like and producing that experience for them. What I'm not good at is being an expert on any given one thing. I think it's crazy to claim expertise. Um, in this industry, there's so many people who do so. And I think quite, quite weird that people can say things like that. The master sommelier thing is the, one of those, uh, one of those indicators, I guess. It's like when you have a person who's a master sommelier who makes a claim about a wine that I, I knew to be false. And I was like, hmm, I wonder where he's getting that from. Like, that's not true yeah. at all. Uh, and then you start thinking, you're like, well, I mean, the guy's like 30. He's been tasting wine for maybe 10 years, right? Uh, how can he be an expert on anything? I've been tasting wine for 10 years. I don't know, shit, you know? Uh, when, like, there's, think about wines that you grow up with, but you taste them when they're very young, maybe even before they're bottled or something like that, and then get to taste them as they develop. Like, that's where you learn about how wine, or a wine develops, you know? Uh, if you taste vines from DRC, Romani Saint Vivant, from the late 90s, uh, I never tasted there in barrel until a couple of years ago for the first time. But you taste them every vintage as they're released, and you're like, oh, this is different now. And it's kind of going in this direction. Still doesn't tell me very much about where they'll be in 30 years because I haven't been tasting a wine for 30 years. The guys who've been around for that long, they, they have something to say about those wines, I think. Uh, so expertise is, is, uh, is kind of nonsense amongst the young in our industry, I think. And uh, I'm, I'm no expert, uh, but I'm very inquisitive and I'm able to pay attention at the very least. Um, uh, the other thing is that, that you learn by being there is that, um, a lot of the conceptions we have about wine tend to fall into categories or, or just a structure of the way that we're taught wine or the way that we, uh, translate wine. You know, uh, I worked very early in my career for a chef who was very wine knowledgeable and he basically broke wine down by structure all the time. You this know, was Gunter Seeger. No, actually, uh, it was Craig Shelton. At oh, the at the Ryland Inn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gunter has a much, has a much more intellectual approach to wine. He tastes the wine and then conjures up ideas. Whereas, uh, Craig was different. Craig really looked at the structure of a wine as the important thing when it came to pairing food and wine. He would taste, a, uh, if a customer bought a wine and then wanted something cooked for them, 
he would have me bring a glass back, taste it, say, the acid is higher. This is a higher acid vintage. We need to up the acidity in the dish so that the dish doesn't taste too flabby and the wine doesn't taste too hard, uh, which was very interesting to me. I thought it was quite clever. Not necessarily the only way to cook, but interesting. And that really had an impact in the way I think about wine. And I think about structure quite a bit. Uh, I visited Shav a couple of years ago for the first time in uh, in the Rhone Valley, producer of Hermitage, San Joseph, uh, some of the great, great wines, I think, of the Northern Rhone, one of my favorite producers in the world. And also an amazing visit because you just you think, all right, the guy makes like five wines. Uh, but then you're tasting for like four hours, <laughs> you know, and that's just one vintage uh, because there's so many different parcels and all of this. But the one thing that he taught me, for example, uh, you know, I've always thought of Shav as being the great producer of Hermitage because he relies on acidity to balance richness and, and tannic structure of Syrah. Uh, turns out I'm totally wrong. He explained that actually scientifically, chemically speaking, the wines are extremely low in acid and almost have no acid. I mean, they're not basic, but they're uh, they're very very low acid wines and the the tension that i attributed to acid doesn't come from tannin it comes from the energy uh, and and uh, character of the minerality of the wines it comes from the granite which is the predominant uh, soil base i'm like well that doesn't i don't understand how is it that the granite is translating to balance out alcohol and fruitiness uh, and then I come to understand, you, you know, he, he speaks very slowly and you ask a lot of questions, his answer, he typically answers every question with, well, that's not so important. Um, I'm just going to talk about something else now and then tell you something <laughs> different. Uh, well, I mean, okay. So the wines are low acid and the granite balances that out. Is that because the granite has some character that's similar to acidity? No, the acidity is not important. What's really important is that in this parcel of the, uh, uh, is really it almost seems tangential. But what he's really be doing is being dismissive of like misconceptions, and I didn't really get that until afterwards, after that visit. Um, as it turns out, uh, you know, things that you think about wine are typically wrong unless you've spent the time and learned it there. And uh, you learned that from a, a, an experience of being uh, with great producers who are able to explain what is actually going on, as opposed to what's not going on. You know, uh, Shav definitely d refused to talk about what wasn't going on, but he just kept telling us what was going on. Pretty interesting. Uh, I had a similar experience this past summer in Burgundy. Um, I was with uh, my namesake, Raj, from the West Coast. Oh, sure. Uh, it was a great fun to travel with. And we were at uh, Munyereji Borg, one, another great, sure, producer, great producer who, who, as far as I know, I, I guess I can start talking about them now because the secret's out. There was a few years where we tried to keep it hush-hush how great they were, but it uh, seems like everyone knows I think now. in New York, at least. People in New York, at least. Pretty yeah. onto it. If yeah. Brian Garcia's got it uh, on Instagram, I think that's uh, that tells you things have progressed to a level where well, it's known. Well, I'll just blame him for it then. <laughs> Yeah. It's all it's all your fault, buddy. Uh, I love the wines; they're really incredible, uh, and I liked them for many years. And even like, the wines were great uh, twenty years ago, uh, having only tasted them five years ago. But the twenty-year-old wines are great five uh, five years ago. Um, and I think it's always been a great producer. But it's these two sisters that that make the wine, and they just produce such purity and such a like. In Tense style. It kind of reminds me in some wines and some vintages of Jaye, although not of the wines, but of the energy and the, the style, you know? Um, 2007, the, uh, the Nuit Saint-Georges Chenot is like this 
unbelievable wine. I remember it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And that says a lot because, as you know, I don't have a great deal of hair on the back <laughs> of my neck or, uh, included. But I, I remember just having like a physical reaction to the wine. It was so good. So anyway, um, I've tried to visit there every year. It was one of the places. Jonas took me for the first time when I was in Burgundy for the first time. And uh, they're such gracious hosts and they're so sweet, so really wonderful, wonderful ladies. Um and I was talking to one of them about uh, the 2011 vintage, which we were tasting. And here's another thing that uh, people don't talk about that uh, happens very often in cooler climates and especially in cooler vintages, which in a place like Burgundy is like every vintage except for the ones that are heavily traded, um, is capitalization. So, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about it with some of the producers. Very few people are very, very open about it. Some people are like, oh, yeah, we, we don't capitalize the wine. I'm like, really? Then how did you get to 12.5% alcohol? Yeah. Hey, Mr. Year? Blackstone, <laughs> let me see inside your hat there. <laughs> oh, look, magic wand of capitalization. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite uh, notes is you taste a wine at Dujac uh, the same trip, and Jeremy uh, Sace, the, uh, the winemaker and owner, he goes, um, I said, wow, that's like... That's that's really got the kick. It's really got that that fullness. He's like, "Yep, sunshine in a bag." <laughs> you know, it's it's nice when people can be honest and open about it because this is not um, a uh, an incorrect way of thinking about it. And some people are like, well, that, "That's why would you have to capitalize?" Even I had this conversation with Kemi. Uh, what, what if you just make the wine that was produced by nature? Well, then it won't be great. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, uh, so. Uh, I'm at Munuray, and she was like, oh, yeah, we, we had to correct it this much, you know. And uh, Raj said, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that people are able to talk about this because you came here five, ten years ago. Raj has been going to Burgundy forever, uh, or at least for five, ten years. Mm. Uh, and nobody would speak about this kind of thing. It was taboo. You know, it wasn't allowed. Um, well, they were chased uh, critically for it. For sure, the, for sure. Wine criticism. Especially if they were making balanced wines, but then they got good scores from uh, people like Parker and The Spectator, who at the time had a taste for sweeter wines. And when they were young, you you know, like the wines didn't show it, but then there was a middle area, I think, uh, from what I've heard, at least, and what I've tasted, where the capitalization maybe becomes a little apparent for a little bit before it all comes together. Uh, I find it most apparent in super old wine. Yeah. Like, yeah. we were like, why is this wine sweet? sweet? Still, yeah. And I actually thought it was like old wine sweetness. And then someone yeah. actually turned to me, it was Josh Reynolds, actually. Yeah. And it was like, you mean chapelization? Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, more like in the like the Piemonte and stuff. Sure, like sure. super 60s, 50s stuff. I think it, it actually kind of pops up more in other grapes than it does in Pinot Noir. Uh, yeah, that could well I, be. Well, Pinot has such a sweetness to the exactly. fruit. I think it kind of mimics. It's harder to pick out. Right, right, right. Yeah. And But, I mean, where it's poorly done in old wine, you can you can notice it and it's, it doesn't taste good. Right. But uh, I've had examples of wine that I have been told were capitalized from the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s even, that uh, that are really good still today, and they're and they're mature, um, you, you know. So I don't really know what, what you could say about capitalization and how it translates to how wines mature, really, because it's all over the place. But uh, in the case of Burgundy, it seems that uh, people who knew what they were doing and were judicious, it, it works pretty well. And I don't think it accelerates. Uh, maybe it accelerates the the maturity. It's hard to say. But anyway, I, I like the way that she said it. Uh, uh, she said, "Well, you know." A correction like this is it, it, you can't think about it as a manipulation you have to think about it as basically like salt in pastry you know too much overwhelms none at all leaves it clunky and just a little bit brightens up everything else it's not about sugar it's about the necessary alcohol to make the rest of the wine taste good and in a way the proof is in the pudding because those wines are making are very good yes exactly do you think uh let me ask you uh 
you know, we saw the shift in fine dining from Bordeaux to Burgundy. It's, you know, there's I now, think it's happened. Yeah, it's, it's happened. Um, do you think in 10 years that it could be like, wow, verticals over and while at a fine dining luxury restaurant? Or is that just silliness? I mean, uh, you're drawn to the wines. Other people are drawn to the wines. Younger people tend to be hunting them down. Is, is what is the accepted luxury uh, showpiece list at a big restaurant seller going to change? I think it could be anything. I mean, today, right now in New York, uh, everyone's grown crazy. You got a bottle of Gentiles Derview and you put it on the wine list, people go ape shit. They're yeah, psyched apeshit. about it. And yeah. you can charge whatever you want for it. Anything. You see the prices yeah. of these wines that we used to have them on the list at crew for such fair prices. Robert yeah. Borer, give them away. Thank you very much. But uh, today, you're like, they're a thousand bucks a bottle, you, you know, yeah. and more. 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 Yeah. 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 Which is. Uh, Fine, you know, um, so, so that's a good example. Like Cornas, you can never sell a bottle of Cornas for $800 10 years ago, you know, right. but like now it's not that hard. We just had a, one for half that recently, so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so totally, it could, the reason I don't think it'll ever be verticals of Auvernois is because like, where yeah, are you going, going to, to find the wine. the wine? You know, there's no wine out there and people get excited about it. The wine's really good when it's young. So people drink it when it's young. Right. And so I think that's that's one category that you will. But uh, on the other hand, uh, bigger producers in the Jura of Chardonnay, I could totally see it because they're starting to show that there's so much age worthiness there. And because Burgundy producers have taken such an interest. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people who hush-hushedly have... Uh, explored purchasing vineyards uh, who have actually bought domains. Sure. Uh, we are to name one that's more open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Ganavant worked in Burgundy. That's know, right. At John Mark yeah. Murray before he went to become Ganavant. You know what I mean? <laughs> and thank God he did. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, uh, the ones are. Yeah, I totally think it could be that. And uh, I think that actually you're kind of seeing that today with the Loire because, uh -huh. uh, you know, five, ten years ago, we had this discussion the other day about Rougeart, Clos Rougeart. It's like, it's still uh, a great wine. You know, they're still producing amazing wine, but the wine on release is very hard to drink because it's so Cabernet so. Franc. It's, yeah. it's austere, but you can recognize the brilliance down the road. And very rarely have we had chances to taste mature vintages of it, right? But like all of these sommeliers are building uh, verticals of it on their wine list. That are uh, fairly young. That are, yeah, starting from 04. But I mean, people aren't going to buy those wines now, maybe. I certainly, you know, I have them on the list and people ask me about them. I'm like, well, what do you like to drink? <laughs> how how familiar are, are you with uh, nails on your tongue? <laughs> yeah. You know, because if, yeah. if you're into it, this could actually be a good time. But, uh, or if you, you know, want to come back tomorrow, <laughs> pay I, for it now, I'll put it in a decanter and uh, we'll see what happens. But I think the Loire is a big indicator of that change because I remember uh, totally dismissed by uh, earlier generation of French sommeliers. I remember one guy referring to them as just happy wines and you shouldn't expect more. Like you shouldn't yeah. expect greatness or complexity from anything from the Loire. And then and I remember somebody I worked with once saying that, you know, that's the area where women have hair on their legs and, you know, it's, it was not I'm considered tell, a well, luxury yeah, well, thing. This, this guy was obviously not that attentive to the real world of France because uh, every, <laughs> everywhere outside of Paris, women have hair on their legs and typically on their mustaches too. <laughs> Uh, this is, uh, I think, an appropriate moment to pour a bottle of wine I brought. Uh, well, fair enough, sir. I will take you up on that. Since offer. we're talking about the Loire, hey. an older wine. Um, what do you got here? Uh, so, uh, Chenin Blanc, perfectly aged and uh, really well cellared for a fairly long time, 1985 vintage, from a arguably the most famous uh, seven-year producer, uh, although from a different era of these wines. And I thought this would be an interesting thing to taste because I know that uh, you... Uh, you know these wines well, uh, both mature and young. And I think a lot of people don't know them mature. 
uh, or maybe just know the wines from after a new regime of, uh, of farming has taken place. Yeah, so, so this is Jolie. Jolie Coulet de Sorant, 1985. Yeah. I, when I first started in the business, uh, I had the luck and uh, uh, just the right place at the right time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. tasted a bunch of these wines from the early 80s, 81 through 85. Uh, and I was blown away. I mean, the wines have such purity, precision, class, uh, alcohol levels very low, not a lot of botrytis, really clean and and expressive. And truly, they, they have like a real Shannon nose, but it's not the dominant thing. What's dominant is for me like the, the Loire sense of chalk and... Uh, undertones of limestone, saltiness, and minerals. And I, I was just so excited about the wines. Um, I came to start tasting the younger Coulet de Sorance, and I was like, what happened here? You know, yeah. Like uh, somebody got From- drunk on the tractor and fell off and things went all- awry. Because uh, it's interesting because it's the younger vintages that actually built the fame of the estate in the international market. Uh, under Nicholas, where this was made by his mother. Au contraire. By 83, he was already at the domain. And by 85, they were already practicing bio. But but I think, uh, and I don't know what's going on here, because I've asked him and Mm -hmm. and he hasn't really answered me. Uh, He's good at deflecting. And I also think he's good at talking about what he wants to talk about, which is fine. It's all about the egg. Yeah, (laughs) it's all about the egg. Well, you know, he's got a regime in, uh, in the winery and in the vineyard there that's different than what was happening at this time, clearly. Because, I mean... The color is totally different. The alcohol level, completely different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, there doesn't appear to be a great deal of botrytis in here. There might be tiny bits, but it's not dominant, you know. It's elegant. It's the kind of thing you can drink with food and uh, m- makes sense for me on the table and something I find pleasurable. Whereas I don't really like the younger wines because I find them overwhelming. They're too powerful. They're too dense. Um, and, and they tend to be oxidative, too. Uh, I, I think that's a, a peculiarity where you have such a high acid grape variety in such a cold area. Like, what are you doing that's, that the wines are, first of all, so high in alcohol and then secondly, so so heavy and, and oxidized? Uh, needless to say, they're not to my taste. But but then you go back to this era and if you taste his mother's wines, which I guess means before 83, uh, the wines are very much in this style. Uh some even lighter. The 83 comes to mind, which is one of the prettiest really wines I've ever had. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Uh, 81, too, which is a peculiarity. And a one. good birthier wine for your buddies if you find it. That's not a vintage that's easy to find anything that's great I wish great I from. hung with people younger than me. You know. <laughs> hey, I'm younger than you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's you. You're no, talking no, about. No, my, okay. my, my vintage is 80, and I've had 80 okay, okay. around. It wasn't very good. Um, but it might have been a bad bottle. It's hard to say. But... but um, this just goes to show that sometimes it's not always a, a cut and dry thing in wine that, you know, if you lower yields, increase uh, ripeness levels uh, and concentration, uh, follow, you know, a specific regime that is decided upon as being the greatest thing to do in this area, um, and then use no new oak or all new oak or eggs or whatever you want to do, uh, sulfur or no sulfur, if you follow uh, that sort of dictum and produce the wine that you're producing, it takes away something, I think, uh, from the openness that I think a a great producer should have. I think a great producer should make the best wine that they possibly can, you know? Uh, And that's purely a selfish hope, you know, because I want to drink good wine all the time, great wine all the time. Uh, I had this experience uh, in Chablis, uh, tasting at the Domaine Louis-Michel, Guillaume there, who's the first to say, he's like, oh, well, I mean, 
you know, we do everything as organic as possible, but on vintages like this, like in 2011, where we've literally, like everything except for locusts and, and phylloxera have come to kick our asses. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we just finished spraying last week, we're going to spray again next week. Um, those wines are amongst the most beautiful, I think, produced in Chablis, uh, you know, and very pure, all stainless mm-hmm. steel. Like people think of, of the wines as maybe a little simple, but I think that they're miss- what they're missing is that purity and that minerality. It's also, it's all minerals. Very ageable. I've had very ageable. We've had so yeah, and really they haven't good. used oaks in ever. I mean, ever, yeah, yeah. Uh, from the eighties and earlier, and the wines are incredible. You know, uh, and then if you really start thinking about it, all of the great wines in Burgundy from the fifties, sixties, and seventies that we've had. I mean, you know, Jaillet included and uh, DRC. It's like these wines were all. Uh, exposed to chemical warfare, you know, in the vineyard. Every time something went wrong, the the way of the the times was to spray. So I'm not saying that it's that organic farming is not the way to go. I actually I try and eat organic, you know, and I recognize that it's better, healthier for us and for the yeah, environment that we live in. That, sure, actually, sure. Yeah. But I just uh, I think that this is a good example of why you shouldn't think about wine and vine growing uh, purely on the basis of uh, a philosophy. I, I believe that, uh, you know, they don't match, you know, wine and philosophy. It, it's like a derailment, uh, except for, you know, the fact that virtually every sommelier, except for Thomas Bestujak, studied philosophy, uh, which is why they ended up in the business of wine, because they had to pay the bill somehow. It's an either-or proposition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, buddy, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Raj Vedia of Restaurant Danielle, come check out what he's doing at the restaurant or see him around and ask him a question about wine. You'll learn something. Thanks. Thanks, Levy. It's been fun. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.